Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, Mike is out again this week. Uh, we truly do promise he will be back next week, especially because as of next week, we'll be down temporarily one of our co-hosts. Uh, Joanna, you're going on book leave, not just an extended summer vacation. So you'll be missing out for a few months, although I do think there'll be at least one episode you'll sneak back on for uh, Here's Hoping. I, I couldn't resist, but yes, I've fallen down a hill in the rain and you won't see me for three months. May, may I examine your ankle? <laughs> I was also going to say that Mike was supposed to be on this episode, but then he got an urgent message, um, jumped on his horse and rode furiously towards London. <laughs> so we don't know what's going on, but yeah. hopefully everything's we gotta okay. we got to wait to do with his ward, I think. we got to wait till the beginning of Act 3 before we figure out the whole backstory behind that. Yeah, um, Mike doesn't talk about his ward enough. I... <laughs> It's actually just his dog that you hear barking in the background of some episodes. Um, If you might have guessed uh, from Dropping Hints, this week we're talking about Sense and Sensibility. That is the rewatch that uh, I will admit I'm the one who had never seen it, and I'm the reason that we watched it. And my goodness, am I glad we did. And then after we have that discussion, we're going to have, once again, two interviews this week. We're really on a roll as Emmy season continues. Um, Hilary Busis, our Hollywood editor, talked to Darcy Carden, a.k.a. Janet from The Good Place. And Joanna talked to Patrick Stewart. Heard of him. Sir Patrick Stewart. My, oh, my God. I'm going to get thrown out of the castle. No. Definitely no Jane Austen uh, living for me. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll talk more about that, Joanna, when we set up the interview. But first, real quick, we really, it's not a lot of news to talk about, especially since we're coming off a holiday weekend. And as you might have guessed, everything's still pretty shut down. Um, but Joanna and Richard, you guys this week are wrapping up your Mrs. America still watching season. And um, I have been catching up on it really late and then listening to you guys talk about it and loving it. But uh, Joanna, with the end of the season, you've seen the whole thing. So does everyone have a lot to look forward to as it wraps up? Yeah, I mean, I would say I think a lot of people are, um, you know, by the time you listen to this, maybe you've already seen the finale, but I think a lot of people are worried about the finale because the penultimate episode ends like with a with a bit of a downturn, but is overall like a really sort of uplifting kind of hopeful episode. Richard did a great interview with Sarah Paulson about it. Richard likes to call it a tour de force, not to steal his words from him, but uh, he loves that episode. And the finale is great, but it is also, of course, a reckoning with sort of what comes after this era. It's titled Reagan. It's sort of like the, you know, the beginning of the Reagan era. So I think people are worried about that, but I think that they will find a lot to uh, like basically you're not going to leave this series uh, you know like weeping and, and tearing your hair out in despair I think that they have done they've really calibrated the tone so you know over on Still Watching where we've been really lucky to have you know the cast and creatives on we've got Kate Blanchett back to talk about the finale and producer Stacey Scher and showrunner Dobby Waller so it's a threefer um, on our finale episode and, and I just I really encourage if you haven't listened to go back and listen to all these women talk about, and John Slattery, um, our token male, uh, to talk about the great work uh, that they did on this show, which is, I think, my favorite show of the year. Richard, I, don't, I know you haven't seen the finale yet, but is there anything else 
you want to say about the show in general? Well, I think the the most recent episode that aired before uh, this recording, the penultimate episode, Houston, which kind of you know features Paulson in a sort of standalone episode, um, is like one of my definitely my favorite hours of television of the year. And I think for Little Gold Men's purposes, like you know, should the Emmys proceed as normal as possible, which it seems like they're trying to do, this show, Mrs. America, presents like a really interesting Emmys conundrum, in that like clearly Kate Blanchett is the lead. Uh, as Phyllis Schlafly, and we'll go into the leading actress in a limited series or TV movie category. But then you have a a rogues gallery of other contenders, um, and I'll be curious to see how they position it. Like, does Paulson get a lead nomination because she's so so central in this one episode, or is she featured? And then what does that say for Rose Byrne or Uzo Aduba or Marco Martindale or Tracy Ullman? Like, it's just like the list goes on. Elizabeth Banks, like, it's such a, a stacked cast that I'm really curious to see how that kind of manifests in, in some sort of Emmy sweep, I would imagine. Once again, every awards ceremony should have a Best Ensemble award, right? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. Actually, someone from FX was like, I don't know if I should say this, but they were asking me, they were like, where do you think we should put them in categories? And I was like, that's a above my pay grade, man. I don't know. Uh, but yeah. There's so. only so much uh, category fraud shuffling you can do before you, there's only so many slots everyone can fill. Maybe that's a, a Fox thing, because I remember a couple years ago, a searchlight exec asking me at a party in Toronto, so sh- is Emma Stone the lead of the favorite? And I was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> That's up to you. <laughs> well, remember, we were all, we were like, put Olivia Coleman in supporting, she'll win. That's the terrible idea and how wrong yeah. we were. So maybe no one yeah. should ask well, us what about do we know? these things. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we should also note that, uh, like Joanna, still watching is going on a summer hiatus, but we'll be back um, in the fall-ish. So um, please do not be concerned uh, if you see it disappear from your feeds. And Little Gold Men... We'll be continuing onward. So do not unsubscribe (laughs) from my podcast while I'm gone. (laughs) Just because Joanna's gone doesn't mean that you have to abandon us. Oh, I mean, Little Gold Men. I meant still watching. They'll obviously keep tuning into Little Gold Men. Like, I'm, you know, I'll be back uh, for one episode of the summer, but also I'm really excited to listen to you guys. But, you know, we're, you guys are doing like Oscar blind spots over the summer, and that's going to be really fun to listen to you guys fill in the blanks. Yeah, we got some plans to bring in some guests, some other VF people. Um, we will we will keep things busy around here. But speaking of blind spots, sh- should we talk about Sense and Sensibility, the greatest warm bath of a film that I got to experience for the first time uh, because of this? Yeah, yes. it was my first time, too. Oh, yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So can I just quickly say, so this came during the like mid 90s Jane Austen boom that was kicked off with the BBC Pride and Prejudice miniseries with Colin Firth is, of course, quite famous. And there were just like a bunch of they did all of them. And there's not that many. but They did all of them with like really pretty solid adaptations. This is my second favorite. My favorite is Persuasion. This is my second favorite because I mean, I have a lot to say about it, but I think because Emma Thompson, who is the reason we're here on a Oscar podcast to talk about it because she won Best Screenplay. She did such a great job. She worked on the screenplay for five years and she did such a great job adapting Jane Austen in a way that really highlights the humor and sort of the social, the social satire, the concerns of women. Because I think Jane Austen, there's a great Fran Leibowitz uh, YouTube video about this, but I, but Jane Austen is often, I think, misunderstood as like a romance author. And while there are romances in her books, like the reason romance are so central in her book as this film adaptation really carefully highlights is like 
this is the only opportunity for women of this era to secure their future and their, you know, financial security. Like, Mm -hmm. this is it. And so it's not just a case of, like, following your heart, though, you know, in the best case scenario for Jane Austen, it is. It's, you know, how do I find solid ground in this world? And I mean, like, the film opens with a woman who was, who thought she was on solid ground, losing her husband and then losing, you know, her family home. And so I just, I think that what Emma Thompson did, it's it's a not very faithful adaptation of the book, actually, but it is, I think, one of the most faithful in spirit. And so I I think that's why, uh, you know, it's been a favorite for me. I don't want to get too in the weeds about um, how the adaptation works, but I am curious about where it becomes uh, not faithful because it does feel like Jane Austen to me in that, like, you meet Hugh Grant early on and you're like, oh, well, they're made for each other, but, like, I guess they can't get together until the very end, so we'll see how that comes together. But I don't know Jane Austen that well to know where, where it diverges. The bones are all there, you know what I mean? But, like, she made, like, Edward Ferris as a character in the book is really uninteresting. Um, And, you know, like, with Hugh Grant's help, like, he's made... Uh, much more interesting a little more interesting i guess in in the in the film the you know the the basic story beats are there it's just that like there's only about i think it's like six or seven lines that are actually from the book in the movie uh so a lot of the dialogue is invented and a lot of it like you know she at the time emma thompson or still is really good friends with stephen fry and hugh laurie hugh laurie appears in in the movie and they were part of um a group of British comedians, you know, like uh, Fry and Laurie did Jeeves and Wooster, which is a, a great uh, TV series if you like uh, P.G. Woodhouse or, or Laughter or Joy. And I think they were just really good at bringing a modern sense of humor and a satirical look at like, so they're kind of making fun of the period and like honoring the period at the same time, which is a really fine line to walk. And and I think that's the genius of, of this adaptation. Plus, you bring in Ang Lee and you've got um, a, a non-British person's outside look inside to the conventions. And, and I think that really adds a special magic uh, to it as well. Mm-hmm. Richard, how did you feel diving into this for the first time? Well, it was funny, you know, because I was questioned by some people close to me as to how I could possibly have never seen this movie before. And my best pathetic, yeah, my pathetic answer was, well, my mom and sister went to go see it when it was out in theaters and I thought it sounded boring. So I went to go see something else or didn't go to the movies or something. I don't know. And I think that like that just dim sort of like intuition back when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, that it was boring, embarrassingly stuck with me well into my 30s. (laughs) Oh, sure. Um, You know, and I think the thing about it is that sometimes these, you know, corseted, deliberately and necessarily constrained romances of politeness and all that stuff can be a little dull um, if they're not given breath and humanity and, and a sort of textural life that comes with a really good screenplay and comes with really sensitive acting and direction. And I think that, like, you know, Ang Lee in this movie is doing something very subtle. Like, he's not doing a lot of flourishes of of camera work or um, certainly no narrative tricks or anything like that. And yet what he's able to suss out of this is just this kind of quotidian feeling of like maybe this was what life was like for this kind of person back then you know the little kind of daily things of it um and that really makes it not boring at all because it feels some version of real and um i think that there are some period 
movies like this that are interesting or you know the story's engaging but they feel sort of at a remove um this doesn't there's something palpable about it which i really really um appreciated and it also helps that you have like not just uh, Hugh Grant, Hugh, um, Hugh Laurie and Emma Thompson, who you were talking about are kind of already British comedy icons, but the cast is just so insanely stacked, like starting with Kate Winslet, probably, who this was her like huge breakout role after Heavenly Creatures. She got her first Oscar nomination for it. Um, but then as the movie continues on and on and more people just show up, like when Imelda Staunton and Hugh Laurie show up halfway in, you're like, what? There's still more like iconic British actors who can be part of this cast. It's so fun. It's like um, it's like the Harry Potter movie um, cameos before the Harry Potter movies existed. Two-time Oscar nominee Tom Wilkinson <laughs> dies, in, dies the first scene. in the first minute. <laughs> well, like I was watching that, I was like, "That looks like Tom Wilkinson," but like that doesn't make any sense. Like, why yeah. is he here? But yeah, yeah. sure enough, um, my favorite, actually, my favorite non-lead actor in this film uh, is Dame Harry Walter. Oh my god, uh, who we talked to uh, on Still Watching when we were for when we were covering Succession. Um, and I don't know if Richard remembers this, but I definitely did my impression of Harriet Walter in Sense and Sensibility in that episode of Still Watching because my sister and I would always go around being like, he never meant money. And she's just like <laughs> so funny. And that whole like uh, montage that starts the movie is just so like light and funny and moves the plot along and, and introduces you to some of the conventions that you might not be familiar with of the world like right away. It's just such a smart way to start the movie. But I was reading, so there's this great, if you're interested in how screenwriting works or how filmmaking works, a book that I had um, as a kid, and I, I must still have it somewhere, uh, it, it, they put out the screenplay of the film in book form, but also with it, Emma Thompson's diaries from the set um, right. that you can buy. And it's just one of the best things you'll ever read in your entire life. And one of the things she says in that book is that her original idea to start the movie was that it was like a fox that had been it starts with a fox hunt and like a fox who had been like shut out of her den. And so she's like scurrying around trying to find like safe harbor somewhere. And that was like her idea to start the movie, which is like an, a, a nice arty way to start the movie. But it's this is like the comedy really sets the the mood, I think, um, much better. But she like in those diaries and then in like subsequent interviews, Kate Winslet's done this. Hugh Grant's done this where they talk about like how challenging it was for them to work with Ang Lee because they all really love him and love what happened. But like, he was very brusque and blunt and rude. Like Hugh Grant would be like, Hugh Grant said the first note he ever got from Ang Lee after he and Emma Thompson had done a scene was like, very boring. Uh, <laughs> or, or Kate Winslet, who I think was like 19 or something like that, right? Like yeah, she when, was really young. When she did her first scene, or her first day, Ang Lee... His parting words to her was like, don't worry, you'll get better. (laughs) (laughs) And he seems like such a nice guy. He has such a nice demeanor, like at award shows. (laughs) I'm sure he is. Like, I think because he was like, he had gone to school in New York, but like, I don't think was that comfortable with English compared to how he is now. So you can imagine how like there was a lot of lost in translation elements to that. Not that he was trying to be an asshole. Oh, no, completely. And they all like, uh, they all, I think, embraced it with that spirit. They've all just been like, oh my God. And we would just laugh because his notes were so like, to the point and rude and like <laughs> great so yeah 
My favorite Ang Lee detail that I learned from uh, our friends on Blank Check covered sensibility, Sense and Sensibility a couple years ago when they were doing their Ang Lee miniseries. And apparently um, he hated working with the sheep on this movie so much, like, because there's a sheep in the background of, like, so many shots. And you can imagine, like, sheep, sheep don't know how to act. Um, but that as a result, all of the sheep in Brokeback Mountain are CGI, like, every single one of them. Um, and there's a VX, you can, like, watch the VFX demonstration reel of how they CGI'd in all these sheep. So uh, Ang Lee worked with many great after- actors after this, but no more sheep. That is so funny. Well, and, and, and what's funny context-wise of, like, the mid-90s is, like, okay, so this is Hugh Grant. Like, l- later, I think starting with Bridget Jones' Diary, Hugh Grant would, like, start to play the rake and the villain and, like, all of that so well. But this mm-hmm. was the era when he was just, like, the he was known to be the sweet bumbling for weddings and a funeral guy. And so this, like, really plays in to that type. But it might be odd for people who are only... Uh, familiar with like later Hugh Grant that this was like this is what Hugh Grant did at the time and then Alan Rickman too um, you know yeah like he his big American break was Die Hard but like he played a lot of romantic leads earlier in his career before he was Severus Snape and so this is like I love this Alan Rickman performance I think it's so subtle and and brilliant Um, I'm just a big fan He's so outrageously too old for Kate Winslet. Uh, I didn't look up their ages, but like it very much seems like the age difference is huge. But like you, you really root for him anyway. Yeah, I think I think that what I like about Alan Rickman is in this is that he's not doing what you later came to expect of Alan Rickman, and I think that's also true of Emma Thompson. You know, sort of swept up in a in a sort of Emma Thompson completism. After watching Sense and Sensibility, I watched Howard's End, uh, which had come out just two years prior in her uh, run of Anthony Hopkins movies. And, you know, I think that, like, from uh, a sort of certain limited perspective, you can say, okay, like, Emma Thompson, great actress, but, like, back in the early mid-90s, she was doing all these period things. Surely it has to be kind of the same performance in every movie, because what else can you really do with, like, British drawing room shit? In Howard's End, she is this huge, gregarious presence, this, you know, voracious intellect, all this kind of thing. It's so different from Eleanor Dashwood, you know? And and I, and I, and I, I love that in this movie, which I guess she wasn't originally wanting to play the part herself but she was convinced to do it is that Eleanor is sort of recessive she's clearly smart and 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 charming and 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 a, like a good decent person but um it, it, there's not that sort of Emma Thompson radiance that people kind of associate with her um, by design you know and I think that that's that's a sort there's a humility there in in the performance in in the way that she is kind of factors into the the movie and that shows the gradient of of characterizations that can, that can exist in you know British period stuff from 1800 to 1930 or whatever yeah but you also get that um, that wit that I think I associate with Emma Thompson. The fact that like you're not going to get something past her. Like she's away. She she sees Willoughby for what he is, um, well before anybody else does. Or like when she's when they, that amazing scene where Margaret's hiding under the table with the atlas and Hugh Grant's kind of trying to like con her into uh, getting out of there, and she just like immediately picks up on it and matches him beat for beat. Like she is reserved and she's like working so hard to be reserved, which is why that her like explosion of emotion at the very end is so incredible. Um, but you you get the the brain that she's got and how she knows she has to operate with that reserve to survive in this weird society that, um, you know, women have to suffer through. Yeah. And there's that great scene um, at toward the end when it's become clear that, you know, that Marianne and, and the colonel are actually kind of maybe making things work. And, you know, Mrs. Dashwood, the mother played by Gemma Jones, who's also great in the film, she says to Eleanor, oh, well, you know, I always thought he had something dark in his eyes, which is not true at all. She was so excited about Willoughby, like, <laughs> yeah. the whole time. And and Thompson just gives this little, 
amused, loving smirk, not to camera, nothing, you know, it's just so subtle, but like communicates all of the kind of stuff that Eleanor is amused by, laughing at, charmed by, that she doesn't always betray outwardly, but mm-hmm. um, it just gives a nice kind of indication of the the sort of deeper well of humanity that um, is lying underneath, you know, all of the trappings of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I think a concern, to, to your point, Richard, I think a concern that Emma Thompson had was that she was too old to play Eleanor and, like, too, to your point, Katie, I, the thing that makes that Alan Rickman age difference, which is insane work for me uh is that colonel brandon thinks also kind of thinks he's too old for marianne Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and so like he's not he's like not really daring to hope as well and so like that to me makes it work uh better and the fact that he pulls that off without doing the thing that i think is much more toxic to us now than even it was in 1995 but like hanging around waiting for the girl to recognize that you love her and like you know being like oh i'm in the friend zone like there's none of that to it he's just this like very decent man who wants to help this family and like thinks marianne's great if she ever wants to come around but if not that's fine too he'll go off with his ward like it's it's such a that's a tough character to make work uh, especially now i think well, and there's just so much dignity and humanity in, like, even the caricature characters, like Mrs. Jennings, who's, like, so funny, but also oh, ultimately so kind. Yeah. Um, or even Hugh Laurie's character, who gets, like, a million zingers in, but then, like, when push comes to shove, is actually very kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, that level of, like, not letting the humor and the satire overwhelm, like, the humanity of it all. Can I talk about my, like, personal gossipy reasons why this is also one of my favorite movies? Of course. <laughs> okay, so 1995, uh, this film comes out, yeah, in 95, and, and Emma Thompson wins in 96. But in 95 or 94, I can't forget, uh, I don't remember which, Kenneth Branagh uh, made uh, Frankenstein. Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson were, like, were married, were golden couples, made one of my, my favorite Shakespeare adaptation, Much Ado About Nothing, together. Um, and he had an affair on uh, the set of Frankenstein with his leading lady, Helena Bonham Carter. And so... Uh, what a dog! Kenneth, yeah. How so dare Kenneth, he? <laughs> how dare he cheat on Emma Thompson? So their marriage fell apart, and uh, Emma Thompson and talks about being like massively depressed uh, when you know she she started making this film, and then she met uh, Greg Wise, who plays Willoughby, and they started an affair on the set, and they are still together and very happy. And she has two Oscars, and Kenneth Branagh has <laughs> none. And I um, was just like, every time I watch Sense and Sensibility, and I'm like, and Emma Thompson got Willoughby. Like it just makes me yeah uh, really feel like there's some justice in this world. I'm like, I mean, whatever. Kenneth Branagh, I don't I don't sit around like stabbing needles into Kenneth Brown. I really do respect him as an artist. It's just like, this was such, like, there's a million versions of this story that could have gone a different way for Emma Thompson. And the fact that like, she walked away with the hottie from the Jane Austen movie and uh, an Oscar to boot. Uh, her second uh, really, really puts a smile on my face. So yeah. yeah. Um, one thing, Katie, is that back in the day in, in Austin's time, the friend zone was called the acreage of comedy. Oh, um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, 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 I didn't myself, have my glossary. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you're about to do your Alan Rickman impression. I was right. Yeah. Um, but a great, a great thing about Emma Thompson's awards run for this movie um, was, I believe, at the Golden Globes when she won for screenplay. Uh, she is, by the way, the only person to have a screenplay Oscar and an acting Oscar. Um, uh, she she gave her speech as a letter from Jane Austen about the whole experience of, of awards season, basically. And it's just this, like, masterclass in this, like, 
strikingly classy British lady showing up at this garish Americans award thing and doing this warm, witty thing. And everyone in the audience is just like, fuck, we, like, we cannot compete with this. <laughs> um, so it's, it's on YouTube. It's well worth a watch. Um, I wanted to talk about the the scene in this that I love so much. I texted Joanna about it because we've been talking uh, amongst ourselves. And for a podcast, we went on together called Screen Dress, where we did a whole ranking of movies in which people don't get together at the end. We're calling Brief Encounters. And they're uh, the breakup scene, basically, between Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant, where she basically says, like, you're engaged to someone else. I get it. The most important thing for you to do is to, like, stick with your word. And, like, they're both heartbroken. But, of course, they can't say anything. And, like, it's all shot in one take. And they're sitting in, like, four feet apart in chairs. But there's so much emotion to it. It is so such a great scene. And like, honestly, I was like, I don't think they're going to get together in the end, but I don't really know. I've never read this book before. Um, and I just so bought everything they were bringing in that it makes you want 10 more Emma Thompson and Hugh Grant movies exactly like this. Yeah, it really helps that like the chairs of the era were so low and Hugh Grant's <laughs> legs are just always like poking out at a weird angle. It adds to the awkwardness of everything. So good. Also, she and Alan Rickman have such a nice thing going. Like they they have this this rare vibe, I think, in movies like this, where it's like there's no romantic attraction, but they get along really well and they like understand each other, um, which maybe is part of why uh, All Their Skins and Love actually are so good, too. Yeah, there's... Um... Not to be too much of a downer, but like when Alan Rickman died, Emma Thompson's letter about it was like the thing that that really I, I like when when he passed away, I fired up Sense of Sensibility uh, and and like read her letter and like had a good cry because this yeah. is just like this is such a good, good film to showcase everything that he could do. And what I also what I just I think what I fundamentally appreciate about this adaptation is that the romances are there and the romances matter. But like like you know, Willoughby classic Jane Austen red herring suitor. So like that whole romance is not that important. Edward Ferris is out of the picture for a lot of the movie. And then Colonel Brandon and Marianne really only connect in like two scenes at the very end. And so what it really is about is sisters and family. And um, like my sister and I would always like talk about how she was the Eleanor and I was the Marianne because I cry all the time. And um <laughs> And it, it's just like such a beautiful story about family and, and women trying to make it together in the world. Like R Richard had a really good tweet uh, last night when he was watching it about like, they're like, oh, a, co a cottage. And it's like this beautiful house and they still have two <laughs> servants and all this sort of stuff like that. But like in the context, you know, they're not they're not eating sugar or beef. They are they are struggling. They're trying to make their way. And they really only can rely on each other. And um, I that really gets me every time. It's such a good movie. I'm so glad. That the listeners, I think at least one person who voted in our poll tweeted, like, I feel like this is a good reward for quarantine. It's like, yeah, I do want, I do just want to, like, spend some time with these people, like, making it. And, you know, they're hanging out in their houses, not doing much. So maybe it's uh, relatable activities. Yeah. And I, and I would say that if there's anyone out there who kind of like me was, had been for years averse to this thing, this kind of thing, because, oh, it seems a little dull. Give yourself the credit of adulthood. Like, you, I think you will find something much more enriching about it. Than, than you might have. And it's okay if you didn't care about it when you were a teenager or whatever. Like, But when it's this good, um, when the performances are so strong, when the filmmaking is so subtle, like, it, it's, it's just really entertaining. Um, and I think that like movies like this don't often get talked about 
as that like like oh it's well made it's well acted and it's you know it's moving or whatever but like it genuinely is just like a good time um and so i would say if anyone out there listening has been hesitant because it just doesn't seem like their cup of tea let's say um (laughs) give it a shot i was really glad i did again it prompted me to go immediately watch howard's end right after which is another two and a half hour (laughs) stuffy british movie and i enjoyed that as well so uh yeah and i think i might be on a little jag i think remains of the day is next Ooh, yeah! I, oh, I loved. I I was watching um her uh, Emma Thompson's Oscar um acceptance speech as well, and they had Anthony Hopkins. You know, it's like one of those moments when like they definitely get the person to present the award because they know who's gonna win. So they had Anthony Hopkins present the award, and he just like before he reads out her name, he just like looks up from the envelope and gives her like a little look and a smile, and then says her name, and it's just like so beautiful because yeah. So it's um, the British version of uh, Sophia Loren shouting Roberto or yeah. Penelope <laughs> Cruz yelling out. The very uh, restrained. Pedro's just name. Like yeah. Or Sean yeah. Connery just saying Catherine. Yeah, right. <laughs> we should do an entire episode. Someday we need to do an episode that is just favorite ways to present an Oscar because I feel like we all have like 10 in our back pocket all the time. Um, it's true. Although maybe it wouldn't make for well, very I mean, good audio. <laughs> Jane Fonda kind of took the cake with Parasite, though, with the, with the little it's, Parasite pause. It's the last good thing that happened in 2020. Like, that moment, like, that yeah. pause was the peak, and then everything went downhill from there. <laughs> I have I have uh, one more behind-the-scenes sensibility Please. anecdote that I want to put in. So, like, as you mentioned, Kate Winslet was, like, I think 19 when she made this. This is before, right before she made Titanic. And uh, she was new to Hollywood and apparently she like showed up to set looking like kind of emaciated. And Emma Thompson, who is like sort of famous for this, she like threatened to quit Brideshead Revisited when the producers told Haley Atwell she had to lose weight, told and Kate Winslet tells a story all the time that Emma Thompson told her, like, if you keep on this path of not eating, I will never talk to you again. And um, and so I think like Kate Winslet just like gives Emma Thompson credit for changing her entry into Hollywood that like could have gone a different way for her. Um, and that's just, that's a beautiful thing. I just looked up on uh, IMDb to see what she'd made. I did not know she was in a kid in King Arthur's court uh, playing a princess. So maybe that's another revisit for me. Is it? <laughs> I don't know. I definitely saw that movie as a child. I definitely forgot that Kate Winslet was in it. And, and Daniel Craig. Holy cow. Okay. I guess we Wait, know is what that I'm the one to. with Thomas Ian Nichols? Sure is. It was wow. uh, either Thomas right... Ian Nichols and Kate Winslet were in a movie together. <laughs> I'm gonna forever like admire you, Richard, for the Thomas Ian Nichols pull because he was like, what? Uh, what's what's the baseball one that he rookie made? of the year? Yeah, rookie Patriots of the year. got a big butt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're really giving away next week's Oscar blind spot viewing, which is gonna be a double feature of a kid in King Arthur's Court and Rookie of the Year. I like so so Richard chose to watch Remains of the Day after this. Uh, a, a movie that I would recommend to watch after this is Imogen Stubbs, who does uh, who plays Lucy Steele, who does just like a great simpering job with it. Who's who's a great stage actress. Uh, she did a production of uh, a film version of Twelfth Night uh, with with Helena Bottom Carter, the aforementioned. Uh, that is fantastic. Uh, so if you've never seen that Twelfth Night, that also um, came out in the 90s, and I would yeah. really recommend it. And speaking of HBC, because I watched Howard's End, 
she and Emma Thompson play sisters in that movie. Oh, so yeah. Yep. It adds to the uh, adds to the awkwardness. I mean, British thespians, it's just very incestuous, or at least it was for a little bit back yeah. then. Yeah, that was a, quite a period. Um, I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I watched this on Stars, and uh, the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice is also on Stars, which is a movie I already love and hadn't really, I didn't watch all of it, I watched half of it, but um, that was a really fun comparison, because I think it's pretty obvious watching them back to back that like Joe Wright saw this Sense and sense, sense Sensibility and kind of wanted to give it some of the same spirit and um also i'm pleased to report that even after succession matthew mcfadden is still attractive in pride and prejudice so congratulations to him (laughs) um wait i wanted to ask joanna about you you mentioned that like they had done all the kind of austins around this era which you know is i I, but i think isn't the one that they kind of didn't touch for a while northanger abbey because isn't that like viewed as like maybe it was unfinished by her or something like that i don't know because i'm I'm just well yeah, they didn't do like a big Northanger. There's never been a, like a big Northanger. They did like a Billy Piper TV one. And then right. um, what's her name? Felicity Jones did a TV one as well, um, uh, like several years later. So, yeah, they haven't because it's not it's it's an early one. So it's considered oh, it's like a, That's a really is. lesser one. Sanditon is the one that is incompleted that it was just turned into uh, an ongoing series. I don't I have a lot of questions about what they did to Sanditon. Uh, but um but yeah, so there's a Mansfield Park in the nineties. There's there's the Emma. There's two Emmas. There's the Gwyneth Paltrow like you know feature film, which I love actually, um, and a, and a great Kate Beckinsale uh, TV version of Emma. Um, obviously, the Colin Firth Pride and Prejudice. Uh, Persuasion's my favorite. That one's uh, harder to find, but it's got Kieran Hines later of Game of Thrones fame, I suppose, and um, Mansfield Park. Uh, great Mansfield Park. So. Yeah, as I I think I I got them all. Uh, I could have missed one, but yeah. Well done. It's, it was like well, it was just it. It was such a fun time, like because let's talk about. I mean, for people who enjoy like period pieces, because like the the big film of this year, overshadowing sense of sensibility for sure, was Braveheart, and like Mel Gibson is in the problematic penalty box and is never coming out, as far as I'm concerned. But like. Remember when like stuff like Braveheart and Sensibility made a ton of money at the box office? That's that's a time that I will always treasure. So yeah, because this one did well. Sense and Sensibility made made a good deal of money, and it was like a studio film. I mean, I I, I kept on thinking about the recent Gerwig Little Women, you know, watching this because maybe this is a you know quarter century later uh, return to this kind of thing. Let's hope. Yeah, I mean, and also watching Hugh Grant um, in this, I had I thought about Timothy Chalamet in Little Women over and over again. Like, there really is a similar DNA there. And God bless them for it. Like, I think every generation should have floppy-haired, period piece, uh, rakish hero. (laughs) (laughs) This year, I'm going to eat better and spend less time and money at the grocery store thanks to ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the meat delivery subscription that gives me more time for what matters most. Each month, they send a box of the highest quality meats for a better price in the grocery store, which gives me more time to spend cooking and sharing delicious meals with friends and family. Each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high quality meat right to my home. All meat is free of antibiotics and hormones. Each box has 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed so that it always stays that way. I can customize my box or go with one of theirs. Either way, I get exactly what I want. ButcherBox is really the most affordable and convenient way to get healthy, humanely raised meat. With ButcherBox, you get the highest quality meat for just about $6 a meal. And they even have free shipping nationwide, except for Alaska and Hawaii. 
So start your year off right with up to 10 pounds of free meat. For a limited time, ButcherBox is offering new members their ultimate keto bundle when you sign up today. That includes one pork butt, two pounds of ground beef, and three pounds of bone-in chicken thighs for free in the first box by going to butcherbox.com slash cadence. That's butcherbox.com slash cadence. So the first of our interviews this week, we're going to hear our Hollywood editor, Hillary Busis, who got on the phone with Darcy Carden, who you probably know as Janet from The Good Place. Um, And they just had a a really uh, fun conversation, partly about quarantine and uh, the possibility of a Good Place reunion, a la the Parks and Rec one, which we can all hope for. And then looking back on the finale, which uh, aired in January, a.k.a. five years ago. um, But it's also a nice dispatch from another time before everything really went haywire. Uh, So let's listen to that interview. So, um, how is your quarantine going? It is going, I want to say well, but that sounds, you know, like you can't really say that, you know, because this is, it's such a, it's the weirdest time for everybody ever. But I I would say that I have it easy because I, I'm not an essential worker and I don't have kids. So it's, it's, it's as easy as this weird time could be. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's good. Um, I feel like especially now you must get a lot of people saying like, it kind of feels like we've all sort of been dropped into the bad place. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I've definitely heard a lot of that, especially early on. A lot of this is the bad place. I'm glad that the show kind of coined that early on because it's been a very apt like meme to break out. (laughs) It is. I mean, you know, the show's been on for like four years and the last four years have been strange for this country. So Hearing, um, you know, this is the bad place for the last four years has been very uh, appropriate. (laughs) Well, maybe, uh, as happened on the show, eventually we'll find ourselves in better circumstances. Yes, I think that's very possible. Do you like this? As we're talking, I'm getting a text message from Manny Jacinto. Oh, what did he say? May I ask? Is that an invasion of privacy? No, it's not. I mean, let's see what he says. Maybe it is. Um, He said, let's Zoom, please. (gasps) It's oh. to me and, yeah, me and Will Harper and Mike Sure, We're talking about, we were just um, talking earlier about a time when <laughs> the four of us were in New York at the Peabody Awards and we had a great time and we got drunk and, and we were just reminiscing. So now he says, let's Zoom, please. That's all. <laughs> oh, well, you're going to have to take a screenshot of that and put it on Instagram and make all of the show's fans <laughs> jealous that you didn't make the entire thing public. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the Parks and Rec reunion is airing on NBC tonight. Um, this I can't wait. interview is going to air later. But um, I mean, knowing that that's happening, have you had any discussions, the Good Place cast, about doing some sort of similar reunion stream yeah, or televised sort of thing? Yes. we. De- you know, like there's this opportunity to help right now. I'm looking for kind of any way I can to help, especially being someone that isn't an essential worker. And I, I want to like actually be helpful, really helpful. And it's hard to know how to do that. So yeah, we've been talking about ways that as a cast, we can sort of do something that would be beneficial. But also I want Mike to be involved, Mike sure. And I know that he's been um, doing the Parks and Rec for, it's so funny when like daddy's busy with his other family. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, we're sort of waiting for this um, to air tonight. And then maybe we'll start working on ours. Not not to say that we would do like a reunion show. We, we certainly, we've just been off, you know, we've been off the air for, for minutes, but um, something as a cast where we can 
freaking help. So yeah, let's let's talk a little about the finale. I mean, it was it is very good to know that all of our good place friends, you know, wind up kind of getting their happy endings. And yeah. like the the show ended with like such a beautiful kind of bow on it. Um, what was your what was your response when you first you know read the script or had your first table read of the finale? You know, the first the first sort of information I got about the finale was Mike had me come into the Mike sure had me come into the writer's room. And I think he had all the actors come in individually and, and they sort of just took us through what the season. So it was, it was right before we started filming season four. So before we hadn't got, gotten any scripts or anything, just here's what this season will look like. And do you knew at this point that season four was going to be the final season? Yes. We had known that for about six months. No, nobody was like bitter or anything, but there were definitely some like very deeply sad feelings about that. Like sort of hoping and praying that maybe he would change his mind and, you know, the writers would come up with some reason to stick around for another year. And I know the actors were all sort of crossing their fingers, like maybe, maybe, maybe they'll they'll decide to change their mind. Truly, like if it could go for 10 years, I would have been happy. You know, it, there's there's there was no days on set where I was not wanting to be there. I Were you ever like, just like, oh, I can't put on that purple no, suit again? Literally, literally never. And that's, a, you know, what's so funny is I, I've gotten so many questions like out in the world about the purple suit. And if like, especially when, you know, it was coming to an end, a lot of people were like, are you so glad you don't have to put that thing on again? And I, and I was like, no, I love that suit. <laughs> I love it. It's so, it's, it's, I mean, it, you know, it's like comfortable and mine and feels like, I, I don't know. It feels like home putting that thing on. I never, I never didn't like putting it on if that, if I can use that weird double negative, but so, you know, we love the show. We love doing the show. We love being at work. So, so I guess that's what I mean about like the sad feelings. And when Mike said this was it, it was like truly just hoping and praying he would change his mind. And then all of that changed when he pitched me the season, when he told me what season four was going to be and how it was going to end. It, it was like, oh, of course this is right. I mean, I'm kind of a big crier anyway, but I did, I cried like multiple times while he, in front of all the writers, while he was taking me through the season, especially talking about the finale. And then I remember, this is kind of a weird memory, but my husband was also working on something else at Universal on that same day. And we, when I was finished with the writer's room, I went um, and met him in like the parking garage and I told him what the end was going to be. And we both just like stood in the parking garage and cried. (laughs) That's so beautiful. Um, So every, every character sort of gets their moment. They sort of walk off into the sunset. Although I was thinking back to it and I guess Janet doesn't really do that. What sort of, what happens to her at the end after Eleanor goes through? I know there's sort of, um... I have like mixed feelings about it. There's a part of me that feels like sort of heartbroken for Janet <laughs> because everybody sort of um, leaves her, you know? Yeah, all her friends are gone. Right. But also the thing with Janet is her entire purpose is to help you, is to like get you where you need to be, make you happy. It's like your happiness is her greatest pleasure, right? So, I mean, it's her entire point. So having everybody, you know, I guess walking through the door means you're like ultimately satisfied. You're like, this is, you know, this is, it's not a bad thing. I know even though it's like a sad thing and we have a hard time, we like, I guess humans have a hard time sort of wrapping our heads around it. It means it's, it's like, it means the best. It means that you had the best life and you, and you 
life in the afterlife, I guess. And you did everything you wanted to do and you saw everything you wanted. You had all the time with all the people you love, like everything. You don't, you don't leave because you're like upset. You leave because you're satisfied. If everybody's leaving her because they're satisfied, then, then like job well done. You know what I mean? That's, that means like Janet, Janet's happy. So there's, you know, part of me is like, poor Janet, everybody leaves her. But the other part of me is like, no, her, she doesn't understand. She doesn't think of it like that. You know, she doesn't think of it like everybody's leaving me. She's thinking of it like everybody is, um, everybody's like found their, their highest peace, their, 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 their happiness. And so, I mean, I, I do wonder like what's next for Janet. Does she, does she ever fall in love again? <laughs> does she ever like make a group of friends again? I mean, she must, right? I would hope so. I mean, I mean, it is, yeah, if she has reached her ultimate fulfillment, then it's kind of like, well, what more do you want? Like, what yeah. more could we ask for? And then it's also like, on the other hand, if like, you know, Janet being left alone makes you, the viewer, sad, that's also okay, you know? Like a little melancholy and a little like, oh, you know? I mean, it, it's like, I know that that episode and the finale is like a happy ending, but it's also sad as hell. Like, I mean, I was crying from the the first minute of that, of that finale. So I think like, you know, it doesn't all have to be like perfectly wrapped up with like a happy little bow. I think there's something about like how emotional it is that, that I'm very, very down with. It seemed like the bar just kept kind of getting raised on how many different sorts of <laughs> versions of Janet you would get to play. First, there's just bad Janet, and there's that great episode where you play the Janet versions of each of your cast members, and then we meet Disco Janet. Like, <laughs> how? You know, I, <laughs> I like, I, I'm so grateful to those writers, and and I've told them this a million times, but I, I'm to Mike and the writers, I'm always like how can I ever thank you for this? Like what in our lifetime, what can I do for you that would like express how grateful I am for what you let me do? It, it almost seemed like they were like pranking me at some point. <laughs> the one, the, especially the one, the one I think about is like when I, in that episode, Janet's episode, having to play the neutral Janet, you know, it was like, the, the pitch was like, okay, so you're going to play all the, all the rest of your castmates and it's going to be this weird episode where you're on screen the whole time, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, oh yeah. And also in the like sort of B story, you're going to be a different Janet in that too. <laughs> and it, and it was very, it almost felt like they were like winking at me, like, let's, let's see, what can you do? This job and this character in the show has been like the greatest dream of my life. It's been like too good to be true. And, and that is like a perfect example of it. It's like, not only do I get to play this character that I am in love with, but also they gave me this little like gift. Uh, many of these little gifts where I get to do something that like, not to say no other actor gets to do, because you know, you got your, you got your Tatiana's and your Sarah Paulson's and all these people that get to play more than one character, but it's so rare to get to do that, you know? It's a, uh, it was such a, such a gift. I kiss those writers on their faces every day. Which of the various versions, um, I guess, accepting the main Janet, like, is your favorite? Would you have wanted to do more of? You know, I really loved playing Jason Janet, um, <laughs> <laughs> like a lot. And those days were, of course, you know, I'm sure you can imagine, like, so sort of mm, stressful, I guess, but kind of like good stressful and you didn't have a lot of time to like sit in any character because it was, it's, it was crazy technical and over my head, but you know, I wouldn't play Jason Janet like all day. It wasn't like on Monday you'll be Jason Janet and we'll shoot all that stuff. And then on Tuesday you'll be Eleanor Janet. It was like, 
I would be Jason Janet for like 10 minutes and then I would have to go run and change and be Cheaty Janet for 10 minutes. And it was, it was very chaotic, you know, even though it was very well, like sort of like a well-oiled machine. But for me, it was just like something that, that I needed was to even just like look in the mirror before I stepped onto set. I had to like look in the mirror and see what costume I was wearing to sort of like center myself and be like, okay, right now you are Tahani, go. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but anyway, whenever, so, so going from character to character so quickly, if this makes sense, it was like, whenever I was playing Jason Janet, I was like, oh, this feels really good. You know, like, oh, okay, this is comfortable and fun. And I could, I would love to just like lay around in this track suit all day. <laughs> and then I would switch to like Cheaty Janet. It, it actually kind of makes sense, like with the character too, because Cheaty Janet was like stressful and hard and I would get in my head about it. And then Jason Janet was just like, duh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would expect, so I, yeah. Yeah, I guess that actually I hadn't thought of it that way. It probably makes sense that, you know, he's the most chill, easygoing dude. Of course, it would be fun to play him. Um, so what was the final scene that you filmed from the finale? There was a, this is kind of weird. I mean, the, 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 there was a, it felt like there were a couple of final scenes. The literal last final scene was in Paris on that beautiful bridge. I think it was called Lover's Bridge with Chidi and Eleanor. I pop in with like a, with like a, um, what is it called? Sugar floss? What the hell is it called? Cotton candy. <laughs> and I, um, and I, uh, you know, I say something like who wants to go to Six Flags or something like that. That was my last scene. That was the last scene of the show. That was that was Will and and, and uh, Kristen's last scene as well. But it also we we shot in um, the redwoods. The you know the sort of like going through the door with sitting on the bench, all that stuff. We shot that in the redwoods, and that was a wrap on Manny and a wrap on Ted, and a wrap on most of our crew. You know everybody that wasn't going to Europe the next month. So. That one felt really final. That was, I mean, like, like rapping on Ted was incredibly emotional. Oh God, I, I, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Don't make me cry, Hillary. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, that that felt like our show was ending there. And then a couple months later, we, you know, three of the cast and and some of the crew went to to Europe and did this sort of like sneaky little. <laughs> we got this like extra little how did we get so lucky to to get to shoot, you know, in Greece and Paris? Oh, oh gosh, this is so, after we, after we shot that last scene in Paris, we um, went down to like the Seine and drank champagne. Can you believe that? It was so celebratory. It was so cute. Everybody was drinking champagne and like, you know, we were in costume and we were looking around like, how, how did we end up here? Were there people in Paris who like were watching you filming? Has the show kind of reached? Yeah international audiences? I, I, I was blown away. Yes. The answer is yes. I was blown away at how many people knew the show in Greece and in Paris. I, I, I had no concept of that. I mean, you see it like on, on social media, you'll get like, you know, tweets from wherever, Brazil or wherever. And you kind of know like, okay, so people are really watching this, but then just walking down, like walking down the street in Greece and having people say, Janet, I can't, I, it, like it absolutely blew my mind. When we were in, I'm just going to tell you this goofy little thing. When we were in Greece um, one night, Kristen and Will and some of the crew and I were at dinner at this cool little like Athens restaurant. And I, and I walked uh, into the bar area and there's this like sweet bartender and he said, excuse me. And I said, yeah. And he goes, 
I am also not a girl. I am also <laughs> not a robot. <laughs> it was like, it was so shocking. It was so cute. It was amazing. It really, it really kind of blew my mind. Um, so we spoke with Kristen Bell um, about the finale, uh, and she said that she kept one of Eleanor's sweaters. I was wondering if there's anything that you took with you on the way, on your yeah. way out. Well, as I'm I'm sitting in my office, and in the corner is, I mean, I, I can't say I like took this. It's not like I swiped it off the set, but the the reset button, the like when I'm on the beach and I get like murdered. <laughs> The big, like, tall, it's like a tall silver pole with a red button on top. And, uh, you know, like, attention, I have been murdered from season one. I have that, which one of the uh, executive producers and directors, Morgan Sackett, after we wrapped, he sort of, I was was visiting the office one day and he was like, come, come here, come here. I got to show you something. And he took me into the office and there was this big reset button. And he was like, if you have... If you can fit this in your car, you can take it home. <laughs> so I have this like gigantic, you know, five foot tall thing in the corner of my office. That Oh, that's so great. Are you ever yeah. like in an argument with your husband and he like hits it? <laughs> you know, what's funny is my, my, I have twin nieces, three-year-old twin nieces, and they like love hitting it. And I'm like, you guys are like murdering me. They just like don't, you know, they don't know. And then the <laughs> other thing that is one of the sweetest gifts I've ever received in my life is in the finale, Jason gives Janet this purple necklace that says, I think it's, well, it says J plus J. The night of the finale, we um, were in New York because we were about to do the Seth Meyers show. So we were all together in New York and we were having dinner and <laughs> Manny like leaned over to me and he's like, I have something for you, but I don't know when to give it to you. And I was like, well, give it to me right now. And he's like, okay, come with me. And we like went into the corner of this restaurant and he like had like almost truly like an engagement ring box, you know, like a jewelry box. And he opened it up and the little purple heart was in there, the little necklace. And he gave it to me and we both like cried. And then I showed everybody and everybody cried. And it was really extremely sweet. Oh my God. We were so emotional that night when we were in New York together. It was like, there's just been so many, there's been so many endings of this show, you know, like finding out we were going to be done and then shooting that whole season four, knowing that it was the end Everything had, it was like richer. It had like more meaning, you know, so we'd wrap like a guest star and it would be so emotional because we knew that was like it for them. Or we would, we would, you know, that's the last time we're shooting in like Mindy St. Clair's house or whatever. Like there was all these endings that felt like so emotional. They're just, it was like a, um, every day <laughs> it really was like, well, this is the last Monday of the, you know, it was, <laughs> it, we just, we had a lot of, um, we were, we were very like, alert. I don't know how to explain it. It's easy to sort of get like used to what you're doing and, you know, the the repetition of work days. But I think that last season we were really kind of like taking every minute in. And I think of it as like staring at each other in the eye and not like looking at our phones. You know what I mean? Um, So once the good place wrapped, what sort of was on next on your horizon? It is kind of on hold right now. Um, What are you looking forward to? Um, So the things I, I had on the horizon... Uh, I knew Barry was coming back and the writer's room of Barry was, was hard at work. We had our first table read, um, the week before like shelter in place sort of took place. So, you know, we were supposed to start shooting Barry on April 1st and obviously that's been put on hold. So that's such a shame. um, That's like my other favorite show. Oh, that's, I'm so happy to hear that. Well, this, even just reading the first few scripts of season three, I would say 
you should be very excited. It's great. And the other thing that was even closer on my horizon, because I think we started shooting or getting ready for this right after um, the, the finale, I'm doing A League of Their Own the, the, for um, Amazon. Oh, right, with, with Abby Ab- Jacobson, right? Yeah, with Abby J. Um, so we shot the pilot for that. And now we're just sort of waiting, you know, waiting on everything else. But it was, um, it was sort of unlike anything I've ever done before because we, I, I, months are all sort of like, like mixing together right now. I, I think we've shot that in February, but we started practicing baseball like in November. We, we were doing uh, practices three times a week. Oh, wow. Since November. So so even though we didn't shoot until February, I've been working on League of Their Own for months, you know? Do you have baseball experience? Had you played before? I Luckily, I do. I played a ton, you know, as a kid and in, in high school and junior high. And then sort of any time I could get on like a, you know, a, a, a team through whatever, you know, the way adults play sort of on the weekends. I would always, I, I, I would always try to get in on, on games there. Baseball is a little different than softball. And, and, you know, this is also like 1940s style baseball. So we did have to like learn some, some different techniques and, and some of the actresses had never um, played before. So we were just, we, we just were, it was really fun. We would do the, we would do the practices in the mornings during the week um, for like three times a week for months. And then the week, the couple weeks before we shot the pilot, we did like a, a baseball camp where it was like eight hours a day. And holy crap, it was so fun. We played with like real live, real professional, amazing baseball players that, you know, that's like what they do for a living, who also, you know, ended up being our stunt doubles and our extras and everything. So, and they were, they, they were incredible. So we all tried to rise to their level. I mean, not even close, but we, they, they were great teachers and coaches. It was really fun. It was like, it was almost like I forgot what, I forgot that the point of all this was to to act. It was like, I was, we were all so focused on playing baseball that <laughs> it was like a side thought. It, it, you know, when, when it t- came time to shoot the pilot, I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, we're shooting a show. This isn't, ju- we're not like preparing to be professional baseball players. <laughs> my career is now not baseball. My career is still acting, but we have this, this other thing we're doing. It was, it was so fun. We had the best time and that cast is already, I think through, you know, through playing baseball together before we even acted together, we became this like true team, you know, like really we, we, it felt very much like a team, you know, usually I think when you shoot a pilot, you don't really know each other that well. And you're sort of getting to know each other on, on set. And I mean, we had already spent months together, so we're very hopeful and excited to get back to work whenever, whenever that happens. And the show is, uh, it's, you know, set in the same time as the movie, but the characters are different, I understand. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, yeah, exactly. It's all new characters and, you know, a new story. It's just the same, the same time, the same idea. Um, you know, the men are at war, women are playing baseball, but there's, it, it, it's, um, the world opens up a little bit more. Is your character Janet-like at all, or is she a complete 180? She is a complete 180, which is exciting and scary and fun. She's totally different than anybody I've ever played before. And I think back to like this day on set where I was having, Ted and I like took a coffee break and we weren't shooting. So we went, went to Crafty and got coffee and we sat down and we were sort of like talking about what we wanted to do next and what, what was sort of on our horizon. And he said, the next thing you have to do has to be like as far away from Janet as possible, which I you know, any, any advice he gives me, I, and by the way, he's like the, whenever he does give advice, he always follows it up with like 
I don't, I don't mean to give you advice. I'm not trying to give you advice. He's so, you know, he's like, you don't have to listen to me or whatever. Yes, yes, yes. But I'm like, I would listen to anything you say. I mean, he's had the most beautiful career playing such a like diverse, so many different characters that are different from each other, you know? And, um, so I, and I, I, I love his career and I love what he's done. So I, I would, and I love him. So I would listen to him till the ends of the earth. But, um, yeah, so this, I'm playing Greta and she's very different from Janet and it was fun and scary and exciting and cool. And I loved, you know, wearing those clothes and playing baseball with my friends. <laughs> okay. Joanna, tell us about your conversation with the amazing Sir Patrick Stewart. Uh, so obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, the TV show Picard, uh, which wrapped up a little earlier this year and his return to this iconic, you know, character that he originated uh, decades ago. Um, it, we talked at the beginning of quarantine back in March. And so, you know, like he was in like major lockdown with his wife um, in their home. What's interesting about Picard, uh, you know, that, that folks who aren't watching it might not know, is that it deals a lot actually with uh, this illness that Picard is struggling with. And so... You know, Sir Patrick Stewart uh, did some lovely reflecting with us uh, about sort of age and and illness and legacy and all this sort of stuff as he was like, you know, had had Corona freshly on the mind and thinking about how it's like accidentally reflected uh, in this TV series that he had just uh, filmed. So uh, let us listen to Sir Patrick Stewart. Sir Patrick Stewart, thank you so much for joining us uh, on this episode. I really appreciate it. Hello, Joanna. It's a pleasure. I want to start with asking you, before we saw this entire season of Picard, um, you gave a bunch of interviews where you said that you were hesitant in some regard to return to Jean-Luc Picard and you want to make sure that if you did this that you did something really different from what you had done before with the character. Now that we've seen the full shape of the season can you talk a little bit more specifically about what differences uh, you wanted to tackle in this season of television? Well I have to be absolutely clear about this. I was not hesitant. I was opposed it was not a case of, well, it depends on what kind of contract I can negotiate <laughs> or anything like that. Um, there had been enough uh, ideas pitched to me over the 18 years that uh, had passed since we wrapped the film Nemesis, which was the last Next Generation film, right. which didn't do very well. And uh, sadly, we uh, we were done. Um the reason that I felt that way was that we had released 178 episodes of Next Generation and four feature films, three of which had done very well. And I felt that that was enough, that both from the point of view of my interest in what work I do and the feeling that I didn't want to go on doing it until people lost interest in it. And there was a slight sense with the failure of Nemesis that that was going to happen. I was very proud of everything that we'd done on Next Generation. Proud of all my colleagues and of the directors we'd worked with and of Rick Berman, who came in to oversee and and rule the whole um series once 
gene had so sadly left us in the third season um, because his death came as something of a shock and a surprise. And, you know, that was the figurehead of everything that was Star Trek. I felt very satisfied that we had made a mark and left a mark. And, And it was a high quality one, too. So I could only see the possibility of undermining all that good work if we attempted to revive Next Generation. And so when this invitation came through, it was not so much the pitch as the names attached to it that had an impact on me. Mm. Um, Alex Kurtzman, Akiva Goldsman, Kirsten Beyer, and then Michael Chabon mm-hmm. joined them. Mm-hmm. And this was such an outstanding group of writers, producers, and directors, uh, including one Pulitzer Prize winner and one Academy Award winner for Best Screenplay, that I felt at least I should show them the courtesy of taking a meeting and explaining to them face-to-face why I was going to turn their offer down. (laughs) Um, uh, And we did, and my agent uh, Carter Cohen went with me, and uh, they welcomed me very warmly and were happy to listen to my long story. And it was a long story about my feeling about doing more Star Trek. And then they said, could they just face-to-face give me some thoughts that they'd had about this new series? And they did, and I admit that they were interesting. And they talked for a good long while. And when it was over, I said, all right, here's what I would like to do. Could you put in writing everything that you've described now? So I studied the 30, I think it was 32 sheets of paper that came with their ideas laid out on it. And I realized that there were things contained in those notes that had not been touched on quite so strongly in Next Generation as they were proposing here. So I went back and had a second meeting. And um, so I went back and discussed with them their ideas in the notes. But I also told them, I made reference to the film that, that had just been released, Logan, what was to be my final, and uh, Hugh Jackman's or the final participation in the X-Men franchise. Mm-hmm. What happened there was that the last film we did, Logan, was so unlike anything that X-Men had done before and presented Wolverine, uh, Logan himself, and Charles Xavier, Professor Xavier, in such a different light. Their lives turned upside down, their physical and economical circumstances ruined, um, their lives at risk. And in the case of of, uh, Xavier, he was mentally disturbed and potentially a dangerous individual a danger to himself as well as as to anybody around him. And Hugh Jackman and I embraced that novelty wholeheartedly, and it made 
the filming of Logan such a fascinating business because we were the same people and yet we were not. And, <laughs> right. and this was intriguing and compelling and it brought up all kinds of ideas and thoughts. I mean, the idea of me um, uh, speeding around in my wheelchair, the, the upturned oil tank that I was in, <laughs> re reciting children's nursery rhymes was, was very attractive to me. So I talked to them about, I talked to the Picard writers about Logan and what that had done for me. And I, I insisted that I did not want them to write another Logan, but the, the impact on, on both you and myself of having something totally different and other to do was irresistible. Well, their eyes sparkled a bit when <laughs> I, I mentioned that. And, um, and they, they said, well, that's exactly what we want to do. So we talked further about that. And when my agent and I, when, when Carter and I left the meeting, I said, you know, my instinct here is to take this a stage further. And that's what we did. I'm just curious if anything from that 32-page document uh, you received survived to be uh, either a story or a theme that you explore <laughs> this season. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, some, some things did, but I'm pretty certain that some of the major things, I know it, actually were transformed, rethought or, or just abandoned. The one thing that remained was this whole principal story of the refugee problem with the Romulans and the disaster that had occurred to that race in which millions of them had suffered and died. That was one of the strongest themes. Also, that something that I had talked about very passionately in our meeting, that Picard was no longer part of Starfleet. And the very Federation was not the Federation that we had all so highly respected in Next Generation. Those strands of narrative remained. And, and then there were new ones that were added. And of course, once the, the, the rest of the cast was built up, then other opportunities opened up for us. I mean, uh, given that synthetic creatures were to be very much at the center of the story, having a character like Dr. Gerati, which Alison Pill plays brilliantly as one of the principal characters, was, was a marvelous decision, as I think was all the other casting that we had, because we're, we're a very diverse cast. And in, in terms of length of careers, if you, if you take me as one extreme, and I would say Issa and Evan Avgoria as, as the other extreme, you've got almost a difference of 60 years between <laughs> us. Um, and uh, that's, uh, that's marvelous. It's one of the elements about about shooting Picard that I so love that I'm working with younger people, um, not all of them, <laughs> as young as, as Issa and, and Evan, but coming with 
different experiences of life, of growing up uh, in different countries in many cases. We are a, a, a racially and a nationalist uh, group of actors that are very diverse. And, and that's something that I know Alex Kurtzman is very proud of, and so will I. And, and so um, with new disciplines, different approaches to how to work, different techniques and so forth, as well as, well as uh, an attitude to television and to filming and to shooting a series that made every day a very interesting and increasingly enjoyable experience. <laughs> the enjoyment was not of a social kind because it was months before we socialized. The work was so intense. And, and given my age, I, I had to be very careful that I rested sufficiently and, and, and you know, I wasn't, uh, I, I, I wasn't having the kind of uh, interesting and fun time that I was having when we were making Next Generation because I needed all of my resources for, for the work. Um, but we, when we all went down to uh, Comic-Con in San Diego, that was the first time that we all socialized. Oh, there'd been dinner parties, but they were always rather formal, you know. But here we were out on the town on our own, <laughs> free to do pretty much whatever we liked. And, and that was then strengthened and built on when we did our promotional tour for the series, when the series had been shot, and then we traveled about Europe. And, and we had a lot of fun. And, you know, we all got to know one another much better. And uh, the personalities, I think, of each one of our group developed and expanded in those changed circumstances. And, um, you know, I, I love and I still do love every one of my next generation friends and colleagues and so rapidly the same thing is beginning to happen with Picard. I'm curious what the cast of Picard gets up to when it's left to its own devices on the streets of San Diego. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Well, you know, there is an unspoken rule about all of that. You know, (laughs) What, what what happens at Comic Con stays at Comic Con. Uh, alas, okay. Um, <laughs> something that um, Jonathan Frakes said in an interview uh, that I found so interesting is he said he witnessed you so easily falling back into Picard, even though this is a different Picard than the one we left. To him, it seemed like the easiest thing in the world for you to fall back into Picard and it helped him get back into the character of Riker for his guest spot. Did it feel easy to you to re-inhabit Jean-Luc Picard? What had happened during Next Generation, I think round about season three, was that I slowly understood that the separation of Jean-Luc Picard and Patrick Stewart was actually diminishing <laughs> increasingly. <laughs> and the, the, there was a, a, a significant overlap between the two personalities. I think it was also that after Gene Roddenberry had left us, the tone of the series did change a little bit. Mm. And that 
allowed me to bring more of myself into the work that I was doing. And so increasingly, as the seasons went on, I became, Patrick became more and more of Jean-Luc. And, you know, I didn't have to sit in my trailer before shooting a big scene, brooding about how Picard would behave or what he would do or, or you know, what he had for breakfast that morning, or any of those things. <laughs> because we were so close together, what I wanted to do was simply instinctively respond to what, whatever came up in front of the camera, the work of other actors or changes in the script or developments as we, as we rehearsed and filmed the sequences. And I mean, for instance, people suggested to me, so are you, are you going to watch lots of Next Generation to remind yourself of what it was like? And I think I must have said, well, yes, I probably will, you know, just to get a feeling of it. Well, I didn't watch anything <laughs> at all um, because I felt I didn't have to. And given that the circumstances of how he was living and what had happened to him in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. all I had to do was to give in to those new experiences and and build those on top of what had gone before. I I grew up an avid next generation watcher in my household and a, a number of people that I've spoken to who are are watching Picard and loving Picard mention the return of Jean-Luc Picard as this enormous comfort and balm and I think especially right now uh you know you and I are speaking uh, in March, but, uh, you know, as we look for leadership, as we look for, for strong, you know, morally forthright leadership, the return of Jean-Luc Picard is, is suddenly someone we're, we're looking for. What does it mean to you that Jean-Luc Picard, uh, inhabits that space for so many people? Oh, it makes me very, very proud. I've always been, uh, a political person, always interested and involved. I got it from my father, who was a, a trades unionist and very left-wing. And that was what I was brought up in. Uh, I mentioned this before, that I, I committed my first act of civil disobedience when I was five years old <laughs> at the, uh, the first post-World War II general election. And when people began to say that to me, and I mean, for, as well as, I mean, only a week ago, I, I encountered Mayor Pete and, <laughs> and to find that a man who had only just terminated his run for election as a potential presidential candidate should have been so excited to meet Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, truly, um, not, not just as a fan, but as a respect for what the man's philosophy and morality stood for, because it was something which he believed in as a, a, a practicing politician. There have been times, both in the UK and here in the US, when I have been when approaches have been made about perhaps uh, moving into a political world rather than in the, the 
show business world that I belong to. Uh, I, I, although I was flattered to have been approached in that way, I always immediately knew that it was not for me because, and the, the main reason being that I love acting so much and the world of show business and the people, most of them, that is, who are in it. And it's, it has brought me um, an extraordinary life. And I think that Picard is actually underlining that even stronger, that we are making more and more of... There are underlying political fundamental beliefs in, in Picard. Um, it's, it's not, the, the series is not about politics, sure. but it is about society and how society has to be respected and how it has to come together. And, and, and that, that gives me deep satisfaction because I believe that in both the United States as well as the UK, things have not been uh, by any means as beneficial to every member, of, of every citizen of each of those two countries as it should have been. And, uh, well, if Star Trek and Jean-Luc and Picard can, can point our politicians in the direction of next generation, then I'm very content. It's yeah, it's so interesting the way the various plot lines of, you know, the Borg and synthetic creatures sort of come together to create this overarching theme of of compassion and acceptance for, you know, uh, what, and the way that Jean-Luc Picard feels about, you know, rescuing the Romulans, uh, this idea of who deserves our help, who deserves our respect, who, de who deserves their own dignity. Um, was that something that you really, you felt very strongly about including in the show, or is that something that came from the writer's room? I, I contributed very little to the show in terms of, I mean, just here and there, little bits of dialogue. Mostly what I contributed to the show actually were jokes. Um, <laughs> Because I like the idea of of, of Jean Luc Picard having a sense of humour, <laughs> so things like T. Earl Grey decaf was my line, um, as was um, I've never really understood science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I can't remember. That wasn't the right line, but something like that. Mm -hmm. that, that wasn't altogether my idea, but I, I enjoyed expanding it a little bit because. I always thought about Next Generation, that it was the fun that we were having and the, at times, you know, and the, uh, the recreational aspect of Next Generation that I know people enjoyed. What have you seen from uh, the fandom around Picard? You know, Star Trek fandom is so famously devoted and and engaged, not to use a terrible pun, but, um, you know, in, in the subject matter. But how has the fandom around Picard, has it surprised you in any way? Has the Star Trek fandom changed in any major way since Next Generation was on air? I, I am now meeting middle-aged people who were teenagers, <laughs> when they watched Next Generation. And that means that the nature of fandom has undergone a bit of a transformation. And occasionally I encounter people who are actually even older than myself <laughs> who are fans of the show. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and that, that gives me a, a lot of satisfaction. There is so much respect for the show 
for Gene Roddenberry and for the producers and directors and the cast of Next Generation. And I feel that beginning to attach itself to Picard already. One thing that I've responded to uh, personally is the storyline of Picard and his illness and, you know, things that you've said in the past about the the dignity that you want to afford someone like Picard, who is grappling with a terminal illness and still determined to help uh, where he can. Well, there were things that have happened in the last two or three episodes of our first season that I, 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 I didn't know about at all when we were filming the earlier episodes. And they, they took me by surprise uh, to, to learn that, uh, I think this was hinted at in Next Generation, but that he had a condition which would be fatal to him in time, eventually, um, and then to learn that it actually could be imminent was was something which gave me significant reflection, both as an actor as well as a 79-year-old individual. Um, it's uh, 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 of recent days, uh, certain things have, have uh, happened to me in my life. I find myself saying that, uh, well, this may be painful or it may be hard, but the fact is that nothing is ever wasted on actors, as I'm sure it isn't on writers and composers and painters, but it's, it's all money in the bank experience. That's what we have. That's, that's our currency when it comes to... Um, creating something hopefully that will be interesting and entertaining. And um, so nothing is, nothing is ever wasted. Uh, it's all of value. And, and uh, I, I, I have to remind myself of that continually as, you know, my body <laughs> gets frailer and frailer and weaker and weaker. Luckily it's, it's, it's holding up quite well. And uh, I, um, I, I can even make use of that in, uh, in, in Picard. But quite how season two is going to develop in that regard, I just don't know. I mean, is Picard now going to be closer to being a synthetic than being a human being? Was he created and not born? Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the plan is to move him forward. I, I have thoughts of my own and uh, how that might affect the storylines of what we're doing and the, the man himself. Uh, but it's going to be different. It has to be different. That I'm sure of. And uh, I'm excited about that. Oh, and my, me too. And my, my last question for you is, you know, okay, so we started with your uh, complete opposition to returning to Jean-Luc Picard. And you said, you know, uh, you've not regretted it. But I'm, I'm curious, what was, do you, do you have a moment where you felt the most confident that you had made the right decision, that you either filming a scene or showing an episode to an audience or something like that, that you said, yes, we needed more Picard and I'm so glad I did this. Yes, there was 
the, the first time that happened, I think, was at the read-through of episode one and episode two, when a group of new actors, we were all, I think, strangers to one another. I think maybe Michelle and Alison had, had known one another. But as I listened to them reading and bringing the words off the page and creating spontaneous living, I because I'd been nervous. I did keep asking myself, am I doing the right thing? Well, that afternoon, I knew that my, my decision had been right. And since then, there have been, there have been countless moments when I've, I've watched something evolve in an actor's performance or had ideas myself about what I want to do and, and listen to Michael and Akiva and, and Alex and Kirsten um, suddenly developing something unexpected and new. And um, I, I, I now, here we are, halfway between finishing season one and starting season two, I have absolutely no regrets. I think, in fact, uh, it was a great blessing that, that um, Alex and his company and the CBS came up with the ideas that they did. Excellent. Well, thank you. I've, I've so enjoyed it. Uh, so it's a personal gift for me. I'm so glad that you changed your mind. And, uh, and thank you for chatting with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. And take care. Look after yourself. Be safe. You too. Stay safe. That does it for this week's episode. We will be back next week. Uh, we will bid farewell to Joanna for the summer. Um, Joanna, come back. Um, we'll keep your chair warm for you, of course, always. You can find us at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, where we are continuing to run the polls for these rewatches. Uh, there is one up for next week's right now as we record this, but by the time you hear this, it will be completed so you can find out what we're rewatching and watch along with us, hopefully. Uh, you can find us all on Twitter as well on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. I'm at Rylaz and Joanna. Your mastery and command of podcasting will be missed until mm. a future episode. <laughs> Set the mainsail for my return. <laughs> I'm a Joe wrote this. Are you going to tweet through your hiatus? Um, probably. <laughs> if we catch you on Twitter, we'll send you back to work on your book. I don't know how to. Qu- I don't know how to quit Twitter, man. <laughs> Um, All right. Uh, And you can find Mike at Mike underscore Hogan and back on this podcast soon. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of the notes that Mike is giving us in his absence from the show goes to Joanna Robinson. His notes were so, like, to the point and rude. 